Hello everybody, my name is Vivian Buteau and I'm a PhD candidate at the Erasmus School of Social and Behavioral Sciences. In my research, I focus on the perspectives of citizens on what are called smart cities, which are cities where modern information and communication technologies, digital data and advanced methods for data analysis are being used to address social, environmental and economic problems. It is perhaps not surprising that this type of urban vision raises many concerns about surveillance and privacy issues, and that sometimes people refer to 1984 when they hear about smart cities. In this podcast, I will talk about how this monumental book is or is not a good metaphor for the kind of surveillance that we are witnessing today. It needs little explanation that 1984 has left a deep and lasting impression, not only in its readers, but in mainstream culture in general. The ideas from 1984 have even become so influential that you don't necessarily need to have read it to know and understand them. Many of the concepts in the book have become widely used metaphors for totalitarianism, mass surveillance and governmental repression of people and their behavior. Orwell described many sinister strategies that are used by the party to keep absolute control of the population. These strategies revolve notably around the control of language public knowledge and thoughts. Terms like newspeak, doublethink and the thought police are recognizable and understandable concepts that have become so pervasive in mainstream culture that Orwell's own name has become a popular adjective to warn, warn against the kind of dystopic society described in the book. However, 1984 has become particularly influential because of its vivid accounts of surveillance in 2014, the year after Edward Snowden revealed the intrusive surveillance by citizen, of citizens by the American National Security Agency, international literature and human rights organization PEN published a study which found that Big Brother dominated literary references used to describe contemporary surveillance in news outlets. Over the world, privacy and human rights organizations award ironically titled Big Brother trophies to public and private organizations that have harmed citizens' privacy. In my own research, I have encountered many residents of Rotterdam who refer to Big Brother to raise their concerns about smart cities. Big Brother, then, has become the unquestioned king of the literary surveillance metaphors. In brief, while 1984 was written more than 70 years ago, the common idea is that its concepts remain applicable today. Talking about 1984 is almost impossible without discussing its relevance in our age of continuous technological innovations and endless talk about the opportunities and dangers about large amounts of data that are created through the use of new technologies. The question if Orwell was right is a popular header for articles, blog posts and tweets about creeping surveillance facilitated by the technologies we use in our work, home and free time. But how accurate is 1984 as a metaphor to describe contemporary surveillance practices? To answer this question, we need to first establish what kind of surveillance 1984 describes. Much of the tension in reading 1984 comes from the threat of constantly being watched by Big Brother and his thought police through telescreens. When Orwell describes the functioning of the telescreen in the first few pages of the book, 
it becomes clear that much of the threat is that inhabitants of Oceania can never be sure if they are being monitored. To illustrate this, I will briefly uh, mention a quote. The telescreen received and transmitted simultaneously. Any sound that Winston made, above the level of a very low whisper, would be picked up by it. Moreover, so long as he remained within the field of vision which the metal plague commanded, he could be seen as well as heard. There was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any moment. This passage resembles the functional principles of another common metaphor for surveillance, that of the panopticon. The panopticon, literally meaning all-seeing, is an invention from the 17th century British reformer Jeremy Bentham and is best known as an architectural form for a prison with a circular ground plan and an inspection house in the middle. Prisoners are locked in cells encircling the inspection house from which the prison guards survey the prisoners without being seen themselves. The guards cannot keep their eyes on all prisoners at once, but because the prisoners do not know if and when they are being watched, they self-regulate their behavior and become docile, disciplined subjects. In 1984, this surveillance principle is conveyed through the telescreen and the posters depicting the moustached figure and the famous text Big Brother is watching you. Big Brother is the figurehead of the all-powerful Ingsoc state, ruled by the party. While citizens are also engaging in mutual watching, as exemplified by the betrayal of Winston's friend Parsons by his own children, the state is the main agent of surveillance and power. In the remainder of this introduction, I will examine the similarities and differences between Orwell's nightmare and contemporary surveillance. To do so, I will first discuss the role of information technology. In his book, The Electronic Eye, The Rise of Surveillance Society, surveillance theorist David Lyon explains that Orwell was astoundingly prescient for noticing the growing importance of information for the operations of the nation state. Throughout 1984, readers are presented with vivid descriptions of how the party retains its sinister grip over Oceania by manipulating public knowledge and language itself. While these techniques of information control clearly speak to the imagination, it is the near-total surveillance of Oceania's population through the ubiquitous information technology of the telescreen which has become such an important metaphor used in everyday talk. Cameras and microphones have become ubiquitous in computers and smartphones. However, audiovisual information represents only a fragment of the capacities of the technologies that we have now. 1984 was written when the world's first computers were only just being built. And perhaps Orwell could not have foreseen that the ability of computers, te computer technologies to collect, store, distribute and analyze information would significantly supersede the abilities of the telescreen, which nonetheless must have sounded like science fiction at the time. The abilities of modern technologies to generate and process data well beyond audiovisual information drastically increase the variety of ways that our whereabouts, behaviors and preferences can be tracked and analyzed and even predicted. 
For instance, through the use of navigation applications like Google Maps and Waze, and the default activation of Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connection on our smartphones, we produce data about our locations and movements, which can be used to analyze and predict consumption preferences and patterns. Moreover, as we browse the internet and view articles, images, videos, blogs and online shopping opportunities, we create a vast amount of pieces of information that are collected, packaged and sold by a booming data industry. It should come as no surprise that this list, while already impressive, is without a doubt incomplete. There are many more ways that our daily use of technology produces an abundance of data that is often accessible to mostly commercial parties. In brief, today audiovisual information is complemented with quantitative digitized information which opens up a whole new world of surveillance, which Roger Clark in 1988 termed datavalence, a contraction of data surveillance. To further compare this with the world depicted in 1984, we need to ask ourselves who are exactly engaging in surveillance and for what purposes they are doing this. In 1984, the perpetual war between Oceania and the other world powers is an important means to keep the population, and the proles in particular, politically ignorant but supportive of the actions of the party. The perpetual war in 1984 is not linked directly to the activities of the thought police and telescreens, but there is a similarity with surveillance in that exceptional circumstances are often used to legitimize the implementation of surveillance systems. Especially since 9-11, the world has witnessed an intensification in the use of far-reaching surveillance systems in the name of safety and security. What this illustrates is that just like the fear of the war in 1984 uh, serves to obtain popular support for the rule of the party, fear for safety threats and insecurity are potent drivers for accepting surveillance in the real world. In the real world. As the world is struck by a global COVID-19 pandemic, we are currently witness of a big emergency being used for exceptional measures Currently, there is much concern that the declaration of a state of emergency will be abused by autocratic leaders to bypass democratic institutions to further their power. As this quickly invokes the image of totalitarianism, 1984 seems as relevant today as it did in the years after World War II. In the Netherlands, the discussion is focusing on the technologies that the government uses or intends to use to enforce the COVID-19 measures and to control the spread of the virus. Countries previously affected by SARS, like South Korea and Taiwan, have been successful at minimizing impacts of COVID-19 by tracking citizens via their mobile phones. This has not gone unnoticed, but and the Dutch government is also trying to come up with its own technological system for tracking and controlling the spread of the virus. However, so far the idea to develop a smartphone application for reporting and tracking the spread of COVID-19 has been met with much criticism, mainly for concerns of privacy and an overall hurried and messy development strategy.
More generally, however, it is interesting to see how solutions to such, such exceptional circumstances are immediately sought in surveillance technologies. Critics like famous historian Noah Yuval Harari point out that states of emergency have been unduly extended in the past, and that many measures taken now will seriously affect future development paths. Meanwhile, we are also witnessing the emergence of groups of citizens who are organizing in dedicated social media groups and link COVID-19 and the measures taken against it to the rollout of 5G technology, which is a key technology that is thought to enable much of the technological futuristic ideas that we have become accustomed to over the years, including self-driving cars and smart cities. These groups combine concerns about allegedly harmful radiation from 5G with potential COVID-19 vaccination programs and nanoparticles intended for surveillance and control by a global elite of conspiring politicians, corporations and billionaires. These are only a few of the recurring elements in various theories that have earned these groups the label of conspiracy believers. Recent interviews with Dutch citizens who are viewing the COVID-19 crisis with such suspicion point out that these people view the confinement measures as an illegitimate attack on freedom and as a major step towards lasting state totalitarianism. Now, while I have not seen references made to 1984 in these interviews, the way these people believe in a collusion between global elites that intend to subject the population for motives of power certainly invokes a scenario that sounds very Orwellian. Sometimes we are presented with narratives of enduring urgency for surveillance-related measures. In my own research, I am seeing how advocates of smart cities often create a narrative of urgency to argue for the intensified use of information technology and data in urban environments. Technology corporations who sell smart city technology, consultancy corporations selling their expertise, and municipalities tasked with urban management usually create this narrative by talking about unprecedented global urbanization, which is equated with increasing urban complexity and more pressure on the human and natural resources available in cities. Led by companies like IBM, Cisco and Siemens, many technology corporations have started to invest in marketing strategies to sell smart city concepts and technologies ranging from the installment of relatively simple public Wi-Fi networks to panoptic NASA-style control rooms for the oversight and coordination of municipal operations, from traffic, traffic and waste management to public safety and crisis response. In the Dutch city of Eindhoven, the lack of safety and general decay of the local entertainment district Stratums Eind was an important reason for embarking on what has become one of the flagship smart city projects in the Netherlands. In this project, the municipality collaborated with technology firm Philips and, local, and the local University of Technology to install a control room that watches over the main entertainment district, collecting information such as the number of visitors, social media posts about the district and beer consumption levels to gauge the atmosphere. Depending on the acuteness of the atmosphere, the control room can dispatch police units or use advanced lightning, lighting and smell innovations to try to influence and calm visitors. 
What is important to note is that while safety and security threats may serve to legitimize surveillance measures, once in place, it is likely that the necessity for surveillance systems and other temporary measures are not re-evaluated and withdrawn. In this way, surveillance systems and practices originally intended as a temporary measure become normalized, which may also make it easier for new surveillance systems to be developed and implemented. But when we compare the relevance of 1984 to the situation of today, it is also important to note a major difference. This difference is that in comparison to the telescreen, the control and use of today's information and communication technologies are more decentralized. Quite different from being the privilege of a highly centralized and sinister state, Today we are witnessing how many of the world's most advanced technologies are being controlled by commercial parties. Moreover, far from the situation in 1984, citizens can and happily do use these technologies for their own purposes too. Modern network technologies and their production and processing of information are often taken as a defining feature of our times not necessarily because centralized states use them to suppress citizens with brute force, but because in most Western societies, they have gradually been incorporated by society at large into many aspects of daily life. 1984, as prescient as it is, does not foresee the importance of decentralized surveillance for commercial purposes. Thanks to critical research and regular media coverage, the public is increasingly becoming aware of the magnitude and implications of the surveillance power of commercial parties. The private companies that dominate the global market for digital devices and services are commonly referred to as big tech. These include companies like Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google's parent company Alphabet, and Facebook. Private companies in the information technology industry have become indispensable for the development and maintenance of most of the information technologies that are used by the public and private sectors, but also by governments, and this has contributed to their positions of power when it comes to surveillance. The business model of many such companies is centered on data. The accompanying rhetoric of tech contemporary techno-optimists commonly invokes metaphors from the fossil fuel and mining industries to emphasize this new, this new role of data. For instance, data has been called the new oil of our age, serving as the fuel for evidence-based enterprises, and therefore data needs to be mined from the many different sources where it resides. These data-driven practices of big tech have been described in detail by Shoshana Zuboff in her book The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Zuboff explains how people's everyday online behaviors are monitored by Silicon Valley-based companies and how these are used as the raw material for the development of extremely profitable digital products. Far beyond the information that we willingly and wittingly provide online, Companies like Facebook and Google are able to learn much about our behavior and preferences as we simply use services like navigation apps, social media, and online search engines. 
Seemingly insignificant behaviors, such as spelling mistakes and walking pace, are collected as data and analyzed on an immense scale to simultaneously improve digital services and to train models or algorithms that make predictions about what kind of products and services appeal to people. These predictions, which may range from the type of clothing you may like to your favorite dish, are then sold to the highest bidder. This highest bidder then sends you targeted advertisements, perhaps with tailor-made discounts to persuade you to buy their products. The, the sophistication of these predictive analytics and the skill on which they take place lead commentators to suggest that these companies know you even better than you know yourself. One might conclude that instead of an age where the thought police keeps tabs on its citizens, we are in an age of multiple thought marketeers who keep tabs on potential consumers. In contrast to the thought police, these thought marketeers do not intend to suppress individuality with brute force, but to study individuality and exploit it for selling products and services. While there is pushback against these practices, mainly because they invade the privacy of oblivious users, Many, if not most people, enjoy the highly advanced services offered by the tech industry. While personal advertisements can be experienced as annoying, perhaps even as creepy, people have simultaneously become accustomed to the enjoyment of online entertainment, social media, and the convenience of online shopping and on-demand services of just about anything. It is simply too good to stop using it. Clearly then, Profit maximization and consumerism are nowadays the core driving force of some of the most advanced surveillance practices. The type of control that is exerted through commercial surveillance is far more subtle than the coercive control in the world of Winston Smith. Formally, people are free to not use digital services and devices. However, as more and more organizations and fellow citizens start to use these devices and services, the scope for opting out becomes smaller and smaller. Citizens in my own research view such developments as a kind of natural process of evolution to which it is easier to adapt than to, than to go through the trouble of resistance. Moreover, rather than disciplining citizens and singling out divine individuals, the surveillance capitalism described by Zuboff works through persuasion and seduction. This kind of world, where the social order is more based on the seductive qualities of pleasure, is more adequately described in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, against which 1984 is often compared. In Brave New World, social control is maintained by keeping everybody satisfied, through a combination of biological engineering of people's intellect and preferences, with a near-perfect hedonistic society where citizens can consume an infinite supply of goods, experiences and sex without ever having to feel the least amount of friction. Especially as far as this consumption goes, this must sound familiar to some listeners. We can also try to map this perspective on the current lockdown measures that have been taken during the COVID-19 outbreak. As lockdown measures have been taken around the world, people turn to their digital entertainment devices as their favorite pastime. 
One might provocatively ask how successful or endurable lockdown measures would be if we didn't have a vast network of consumption at our disposal from our couch. It is my idea that some people at least initially could enjoy their confinement to home and mandatory Netflix binging. In a relatively safe environment, convenience is arguably a more palpable benefit of contemporary digital technologies than safety is, which might also explain why many people reluctantly accept that Google knows you very well, but a COVID-19 app or a new law against increasing surveillance capacities for the Dutch National Intelligence Agency are generally deemed intrusive. In addition to the way that surveillance has increasingly become a key instrument of corporations, surveillance scholars have started to draw attention to the ways that surveillance has become a cultural practice in which society at large participates. To watch and be watched is a central component of the type of digital culture that has become normalized in many parts of the world. Surveillance scholar David Lyon, whom I already quote, quoted above, calls this the emergence of a surveillance culture. When I was a kid, I remember the new reality television show Big Brother, where a group of young adults who don't know each other live together in a house with surveillance cameras everywhere. Spectators of the show could simply watch as the participants started to grapple with the limited amount of privacy granted to them in their confined living environment. Not only have these kind of television show formats, formats become normalized, with the advent of social media like YouTube, Facebook and Instagram, many people are now broadcasting their own lives, lives on the internet, inviting anyone willing to follow to have a look. Moreover, we also survey ourselves as we track our fitness performances and overall health, which is also facilitated by an abundance of devices and apps like Fitbits and sleep apps. Only a fraction of this data ends up with users themselves. Most of the data produced by these devices and apps ends up with the corporations offering such devices and services. These kind of activities coexist and often blend into the various ways that we have become accustomed to seeing and using surveillance technologies in everyday life. People rarely pay attention to CCTV cameras or Wi-Fi trackers. And as explained before, we have simply come to enjoy digital services and social media. This normalization of surveillance technologies can be seen as part of a broader shift in which surveillance has developed from something that impinges on people from outside to something that people have become deeply engaged with. This has led surveillance scholars to start focusing not only on the roles of states and corporations in surveilling populations, but on the experiences of and engagement with surveillance by citizens, consumers, travelers, employees, and so on. I will briefly explain two alternative modes of surveillance that can be seen in the framework of this surveillance culture. The first is what is called horizontal surveillance, lateral surveillance or covalence. Citizens have never had more opportunities to acquire new technological means to survey others themselves. For instance, 
neighbors now often organize themselves in social media apps like WhatsApp and Nextdoor to monitor potentially malicious outsiders in, other neighbor in their neighborhoods. Such groups are often encouraged by local authorities also to support their effort through the use of other surveillance technologies such as doorbell cameras. Amazon is the producer of the popular Ring doorbell camera, which has been distributed by several Dutch municipalities practically for free. This makes it plausible to think that what is marketed as a safety technology is highly interwoven with the logics of surveillance capitalism and is ultimately driven by the collection of data. In the Netherlands alone, there are over 8,000 neighborhood WhatsApp groups, WhatsApp groups which are organized in a national association. In my own research projects, I have seen how such groups in Rotterdam are sometimes successful in tracking thieves or other perpetrators in cooperation with local authorities. However, sometimes these groups struggle to control suspicion in their communications, and the label of suspicion can be unjustly attributed to individuals and groups leading to unnecessary privacy infringements and the discrimination of minority groups. Another way in which citizens engage with surveillance themselves is when they use new technology to record the behavior of authorities, especially in the case of power abuse. This form of subversive surveillance was pioneered by Steve Mann, who used wearable technologies to look back at CCTV and coined this as surveillance, which loosely means to watch from below. In the Netherlands, a well-known example is the recording of the violent arrest of Mitch Rodriguez by two police officers, which resulted in his death and subsequent rioting by outraged citizens. On social media, there are many more such examples to be found aimed at the exposure of the abuse of power and discrimination on the part of authorities. The key of talking about a surveillance culture, instead of a surveillance state or a surveillance society, is that more emphasis is put on the ways that surveillance has become ubiquitous and commonplace through the increasing mediation of social relationships through digital technologies and that shared understandings of surveillance and the surveillance practices of ordinary citizens, who are usually only considered as the, as the subjects of surveillance, can produce complacency, compliance, negotiation or resistance of surveillance in various ways. In a nutshell, surveillance is no longer unidirectional in the sense that it is only something that external parties, such as the states and corporations do to us, we are deeply involved in surveillance ourselves. What do all these various examples of citizens' own engagement with surveillance mean for the relevance of 1984 today? The shift away from an exclusive emphasis on the role of states is fundamentally post-Aurelian. In many Western countries, we are not dealing with a single omnipotent big brother but rather with a multitude of little, medium-sized and larger big brothers and sisters, each having a specific oversight, but none as general and complete as the thought police. This has important implications for the ways that contemporary surveillance is experienced. 
It will be hard to argue that people in liberal democracies experience the possibility of being monitored in the same way as Winston Smith, for whom the threat is clear and absolute. A major problem with much of the surveillance we encounter today is that people do not know how it operates and how they are affected by it. Opacity and uncertainty about the designs of such technological systems was a major concern for participants in my, in, in, in my studies, which I have encountered in related research as well. Many technologies and systems of surveillance are black boxed, and many people, including designers of software and algorithms themselves, do not fully understand their functioning. Looking behind the facades of devices and their interfaces which facilitate their use, when we try to open up the black box, as it were, and attempt to trace exactly how surveillance technologies function and how they connect with a network of technological infrastructures, organizations, data, users, and other technologies, we, we quickly run into a maze-like assemblage which is perhaps more akin to Franz Kafka's vision conveyed in his novel The Trial. In this novel, which is not less grim to uh, than 1984 to be sure, the protagonist Joseph K is arrested for an un unspecified crime, but he is not taken to prison and left free. As Joseph K tries to find out more about his accusation, the reader is taken along a journey through obscure courtrooms, lawyers and bureaucrats where Joseph K is confronted with a bureaucracy that is indifferent to his predicament and he never finds out the reasons for his arrest. Recently, many Dutch families experienced something similar when they were unjustly marked for as welfare frauds by the tax authorities and tried to claim their rights. If the murkiness and difficulty of figuring out surveillance systems and challenging their decisions is such an important feature of our times, perhaps it is good to enrich the metaphorical toolkit for describing surveillance beyond the concepts provided by 1984. Understanding the context in which novels are written is often crucial to understanding them. Orwell wrote 1984 in 1948 when fascist and communist totalitarianism loomed large, while the free world was developing into a consumption society. Moreover, entering the post-World War II geopolitical era, there was the continuous threat of war between colliding world powers, which assembled in blocks of nations, and the recent invention of the atomic bomb made an, an apocalyptic scenario far from unthinkable. These events inspired Orwell to write his novel. However, what Orwell did not foresee is how surveillance technologies would interlock with highly developed capitalist consumption societies. And what Orwell might not have foreseen was that new technologies might eventually permit surveillance tending towards a form of commercial totalitarianism with democratic processes still neatly in place. Metaphors can certainly enrich our imagination, and they can provide descriptive accuracy. However, used wrongly, they can also narrow our vision on important societal topics that cannot adequately be captured by a single approach or perspective. When we look for metaphors to describe contemporary surveillance phenomena, 
we should refrain from automatically referring to Orwell. There are many different works of fiction which can help us. I have already mentioned the two most evident other classic works, Huxley's Brave New World and Kafka's The Trial. Huxley provides a helpful metaphor for describing the motives that drive technological innovation and for how power can be exercised not only through brute force, but through seduction and the careful elimination of friction. Kafka is helpful in describing the difficulty of understanding the opacity of contemporary surveillance systems and the dehumanizing experiences of severe interventions that can follow from them. Each of these novels revolves around a protagonist who feels out of place in his judicial and social context. One might ask, what would a modern incantation of a similar dystopic vision look like? I have to admit that I haven't read much recent literature lately, but for, for those who have taken a liking to dystopian science fiction, I can re recommend Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sour series, or perhaps more likely, Gary Steingart's super sad true love story.